Section 10 of For the Term of His Natural Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For the Term of His Natural Life by Marcus Clarke. Book 1 The Sea. 1827. Chapter 10. Eight Bells. At seven o'clock, there had been also a commotion in the prison. The news of the fever had awoke in the convicts all that love of liberty which had but slumbered during the monotony of the earlier part of the voyage. Now that death menaced them, they longed fiercely for the chance of escape which seemed permitted to free men. Let us get out, they said, each man speaking to his particular friend. We are locked up here to die like sheep. Gloomy faces and desponding looks met the gaze of each and sometimes across this gloom shot a fierce glance that lighted up its blackness, as a lightning flash renders luridly luminous the indigo dullness of a thundercloud. By and by, in some inexplicable way, it came to be understood that there was a conspiracy afloat, that they were to be released from their shambles, that some amongst them had been plotting for freedom. The tween decks held its foul breath in wondering anxiety afraid to breathe its suspicions. The influence of this predominant idea showed itself by a strange shifting of atoms. The mass of villainy, ignorance, and innocence began to be animated with something like a uniform movement. Natural affinities came together, and like allied itself to like, falling noiselessly into harmony, as the pieces of glass and coloured beads in a kaleidoscope assume mathematical forms. By seven bells it was found that the prison was divided into three parties, the desperate, the timid, and the cautious. These three parties had arranged themselves in natural sequence. The mutineers, headed by Gabbett, Vetch, and the Moocher, were nearest to the door. The timid, boys, old men, innocent poor wretches condemned on circumstantial evidence, or rustics condemned to be turned into thieves for pulling a turnip, were at the farther end, huddling together in alarm and the prudent, that is to say, all the rest, ready to fight or fly, advance or retreat, assist the authorities or their companions as the fortunes of the day might direct, occupied the middle space. The mutineers proper numbered perhaps some thirty men, and of these thirty only half a dozen knew what was really about to be done. The ship's bell strikes the half-hour, and as the cries of the three sentries passing the word to the quarter-deck die away, Gabbett, who has been leaning with his back against the door, nudges Jemmy Vetch. Now, Jemmy, he says in a whisper, tell him. The whisper being heard by those nearest the giant, a silence ensues, which gradually spreads like a ripple over the surface of the crowd, reaching even the bunks at the further end. Gentlemen, says Mr. Vetch, politely sarcastic in his own hangdog fashion, myself and my friends here are going to take the ship for you. Those who like to join us had better speak at once, for in about half an hour they will not have the opportunity. He pauses and looks round with such an impertinently confident air that three waverers in the party amidships slip nearer to hear him. You needn't be afraid, Mr. Vetch continues. We have arranged it all for you. There are friends waiting for us outside, and the door will be open directly. All we want, gentlemen, is your vote and interest. I mean your... Gaffin again interrupts the giant angrily. Come to business, can't you? Tell them they may like it or lump it, but we mean to have the ship. 
and them as refuses to join us we mean to chuck overboard. That's about the plain English of it. This practical way of putting it produces a sensation, and the Conservative Party at the other end look in each other's faces with some alarm. A grim murmur runs round, and somebody near Mr. Gabbett laughs a laugh of mingled ferocity and amusement, not reassuring to timid people. "'What about the sodgers?' asked a voice from the ranks of the cautious. "'Damn the sodgers!' cries the moocher, moved by a sudden inspiration. "'They can but shoot you, and that's as good as dying of typhus anyway.' The right chord had been struck now, and with a stifled roar the prison admitted the truth of this statement. "'Go on, old man,' cries Jemmy Vetch to the giant, rubbing his thin hands with Ildric glee. "'They're all right.' And then, his quick ears catching the jingle of arms, he said, "'Stand by now for the door. One rush'll do it.' It was eight o'clock, and the relief guard was coming from the after-deck. The crowd of prisoners round the door held their breath to listen. It's all planned, says Gabbett in a low growl. When the door opens, we rush, and we're in among the guard afore they know where they are. Drag em back into the prison, grab the harm rack, and it's all over. They're very quiet about it, says the crow suspiciously. I hope it's all right. Stand from the door, Miles, says Pine's voice outside, in its usual calm accents. The crow was relieved. The tone was an ordinary one and Miles was the soldier whom Sarah Purfoy had bribed not to fire. All had gone well. The keys clashed and turned, and the bravest of the prudent party, who had been turning in his mind the notion of risking his life for a pardon, to be won by rushing forward at the right moment and alarming the guard, checked the cry that was in his throat as he saw the men round the door draw back a little for their rush, and caught a glimpse of the giant's bristling scalp and bared gums. Now! cries Jemmy Vetch, as the iron-plated oak swung back, and with the guttural snarl of a charging wild boar, Gabbett hurled himself out of the prison. The red line of light which glowed for an instant through the doorway was blotted out by a mass of figures. All the prison surged forward, and before the eye could wink, five, ten, twenty of the most desperate were outside. It was as though a sea, breaking against the stone wall, had found some breach through which to pour its waters. The contagion of battle spread. Caution was forgotten, and those at the back, and seeing Jemmy Vetch, raised upon the crest of that human billow which reared its black outline against the indistinct perspective of struggling figures, responded to his grin of encouragement by rushing furiously forward. Suddenly a horrible roar like that of a trapped wild beast was heard. The rushing torrent choked in the doorway, and from out the lantern glow into which Giant had rushed, a flash broke, followed by a groan, as the perfidious sentry fell back, shot through the breast. The mass in the doorway hung irresolute, and then, by sheer weight of pressure from behind, burst forward, and as it so burst, the heavy door crashed into its jams, and the bolts were shot into their places. All this took place by one of those simultaneous movements, which are so rapid in execution, so tedious to describe in detail. At one instant the prison door had opened, at the next it had closed. The picture which had presented itself to the eyes of the convicts was as momentary as are those of the thaumatoscope. The period of time that had elapsed between the opening and the shutting of the door could have been marked by the musket shot. The report of another shot, and then a noise of confused cries, mingled with the clashing of arms, informed the imprisoned men that the ship had been alarmed. 
How would it go with their friends on deck? Would they succeed in overcoming the guards, or would they be beaten back? They would soon know, and in the hot dusk, straining their eyes to see each other, they waited for the issue. Suddenly the noises ceased, and a strange rumbling sound fell upon the ears of the listeners. What had taken place? This. The men, pouring out of the darkness into the sudden glare of the lanterns, rushed, bewildered across the deck. Miles, true to his promise, did not fire. But, the next instant, Vickers had snatched the firelock from him, and, leaping into the stream, turned about and fired down toward the prison. The attack was more sudden than he had expected, but he did not lose his presence of mind. The shot would serve a double purpose. It would warn the men in the barrack, and perhaps check the rush by stopping up the doorway with a corpse. Beaten back, struggling and indignant, amid the storm of hideous faces, his humanity vanished, and he aimed deliberately at the head of Mr. James Vetch. The shot, however, missed its mark, and killed the unhappy Miles. Gabbett and his companions had, by this time, reached the foot of the companion ladder, there to encounter the cutlasses of the doubled guard, gleaming redly in the glow of the lanterns. A glance up the hatchway showed the giant that the arms he had planned to seize were defended by ten firelocks, and that, behind the open doors of the partition which ran abaft the mizzenmast, the remainder of the detachment stood to their arms. Even his dull intellect comprehended that the desperate project had failed, and that he had been betrayed. With the roar of despair which had penetrated into the prison, he turned to fight his way back, just in time to see the crowd in the gangway recoil from the flash of the musket fired by Vickers. The next instant, Pine and two soldiers, taking advantage of the momentary cessation of the press, shot the bolts and secured the prison. The mutineers were caught in a trap. The narrow space between the barracks and the barricade was choked with struggling figures. Some twenty convicts and half as many soldiers struck and stabbed at each other in the crowd. There was barely elbow room, and attacked the attackers, fought almost without knowing whom they struck. Gabbett tore a cutlass from a soldier, shook his huge head, and calling on the moocher to follow, bounded up the ladder, desperately determined to brave the fire of the watch. The moocher, close at the giant's heel, flung himself upon the nearest soldier, and, grasping his wrist, struggled for the cutlass. A brawny bull-necked fellow next to him dashed his clenched fist in the soldier's face, and the man, maddened by the blow, let go the cutlass, and drawing his pistol, shot his new assailant through the head. It was this second shot that aroused Maurice Freer. As the young lieutenant sprang upon the deck, he saw by the position of the guard that others had been more mindful of the safety of the ship than he. There was, however, no time for explanation, for, as he reached the hatchway, he was met by the ascending giant, who uttered a hideous oath at the sight of this unexpected adversary, and, too close to strike him, locked him in his arms. The two men were drawn together. The guard on the quarter-deck dared not fire at the two bodies that, twined about each other, rolled across the deck, and for a moment Mr. Freer's cherished existence hung upon the slenderest thread imaginable. The moocher, spattered with the blood and brains of his unfortunate comrade, had already set his foot upon the lowest step of the ladder, when the cutlass was dashed from his hand by a blow from a clubbed firelock, and he was dragged roughly backwards. As he fell upon the deck, 
he saw the crow spring out of the mass of prisoners who had been, an instant before, struggling with the guard, and, gaining the cleared space at the bottom of the ladder, hold up his hands as though to shield himself from a blow. The confusion now became suddenly stilled, and upon the group before the barricade had fallen that mysterious silence which had perplexed the inmates of the prison. They were not perplexed for long. The two soldiers who, with the assistance of Pine, had forced to the door of the prison, rapidly unbolted that trap-door in the barricade, of which mention has been made in a previous chapter, and, at a signal from Vickers, three men ran the loaded howitzer from its sinister shelter near the break of the barrack berths, and, training the deadly muzzle to a level with the opening in the barricade, stood ready to fire. "'Surrender!' cried Vickers, in a voice from which all the humanity had vanished. "'Surrender, and give up your ringleaders, or I'll blow you to pieces.' There was no tremor in his voice, and though he stood, with Pine by his side, at the very mouth of the levelled cannon, the mutineers perceived, with that acuteness which imminent danger brings to the most stolid of brains, that, did they hesitate an instant, he would keep his word. There was an awful moment of silence, broken only by a scurrying noise in the prison, as though a family of rats, disturbed at a flower cask, were scampering to the ship's side for shelter. This scurrying noise was made by the convicts rushing to their berths to escape the threatened shower of grape. To the twenty desperadoes cowering before the muzzle of the howitzer, it spoke more eloquently than words. The charm was broken. Their comrades would refuse to join them. The position of affairs at this crisis was a strange one. From the opened trap-door came a sort of subdued murmur, like that which sounds within the folds of a seashell, but, in the oblong block of darkness which it framed, nothing was visible. The trap-door might have been a window looking into a tunnel. On each side of this horrible window, almost pushed before it by the pressure of one upon the other, stood Pine, Vickers, and the guard. In front of the little group lay the corpse of the miserable boy whom Sarah Purfoy had led to ruin and forced close upon, yet shrinking back from the trampled and bloody mass, crouched in mingled terror and rage the twenty mutineers. Behind the mutineers, withdrawn from the patch of light thrown by the open hatchway, the mouth of the howitzer threatened destruction. And behind the howitzer, backed up by an array of brown musket barrels, suddenly glowed the tiny fire of the burning match in the hand of Vicar's trusty servant. The entrapped men looked up the hatchway, but the guard had already closed in upon it, and some of the ship's crew, with that carelessness of danger characteristic of sailors, were peering down upon them. Escape was hopeless. One minute, cried Vickers, confident that one second would be enough. One minute to go quietly, or... Surrender, mates, for God's sake, shrieked some unknown wretch from out of the darkness of the prison. Do you want to be the death of us? Jemmy Vetch feeling by that curious sympathy which nervous natures possess that his comrades wished him to act as a spokesman, him to act as spokesman, raised his shrill tones. "'We surrender,' he said. "'It's no use getting our brains blown out.' And raising his hands, he obeyed the motion of Vicar's fingers, and led the way toward the barrack. "'Bring the irons forward there,' shouted Vickers, hastening from his perilous position. And... Before the last man had filed past the still-smoking match, the cling of hammers announced that the crow had resumed those fetters which had been knocked off his dainty limbs a month previously in the Bay of Bitsgay. 
In another moment the trap-door was closed, the howitzer rumbled back to its cleatings, and the prison breathed again.